So I'm not sure if you saw, if you have Facebook or if you saw this in the Grace Point group, but there was a posting that was shared from the Gospel Coalition regarding what makes an effective ministry. What makes an effective ministry? Or if I can uh, reword it, how can we live in a mature and a strong and victorious life as a believer? And what the article notes are things like prayer, living as an example, living consistently, living, talking with the right tone when you talk to people. And so a lot of the things that they list, none of, nothing was really mind-blowing about it. But the point of the article that I found helpful was that many people think to be an effective ministry, right, to be an a, a effective Christian, that you have to be this mature, strong believer, to know everything, appearing that you're winning at life, showcasing all that you're doing for God. Look at what I do with my life. And if you do that, maybe you're an effective believer, right? But what the article points out that I like, it's not really about the big things, but it's about the little things. That our power and maturity is really found in the invisible things. And to read you a few lines from what the author writes, he writes this, the most effective weapons in the war of ministry aren't always the most prominent, the most noticed, or the most remembered. But many of the simple tools God has given us possesses a power that matches their invisibility. In fact, they often possess a power inversely proportional to the attention we give them. So if, we were, if, we're, if we're wise, we won't just use the obvious or noteworthy methods of ministry. We'll also learn to trust the God who's given us subtle ways to win the war. And I share this because, you know, when we think about the Christian life, we think like this. And isn't it true that often when we think about what makes an effective church, that we probably think in big ways too, right? What makes an effective church? And some of us might think it's if we're a church that's five, six, seven hundred people, maybe if we're a church that has a big budget, awesome praise, a revival type of speaker, then we're an effective church, right? Or maybe if we're super missional, if we're planting church after church and we can be so proud and pat ourselves on the back to say what an awesome job, then we're an effective church, right? It's a tough question to ask, to ask what really makes an effective church. But this morning as we finish up chapter 1 and all the reasons Paul gave why we're blessed as individuals, today in our passage, I'd like us to see how we're blessed corporately too as a church and what that means. And so if we look closely at our text, I want us to see at least three reasons or three characteristics of being an effective church. And again, it's not the big, awesome things that we think of, but it's often the subtle things that Scripture points to. And the three reasons or the three characteristics I'd like us to see is first, to be an effective church, we should be a supportive and encouraging church. Second, we need to be a spiritual church. And what I mean by that is to have spiritual eyes, to live with a spiritual perspective. And the last thing is that we need to be a powerful church, meaning that in everything that we read, we're going to live out of the power of the resurrection that God has given the church. 
And so the first thing, to be an effective church, uh, I want us to see that we have to be a supportive and encouraging one. I don't know how many of you guys have siblings, if you grew up with any brothers and sisters, but I grew up with two older sisters. And I don't care what people are going to say about being the youngest, right? Or in Korean, being the mangne or whatever that means, like being the youngest. And they say, you know what? The youngest are always the spoiled ones. They're always the bratty ones, the ones that have it the easiest because you're just so young that people will take care of you all the time, right? People say that. But let me just say, that's not always the case, right? And it wasn't the case in my family. Growing up, I feel like all I heard most of the time was, Tom, how come you don't dress as nice as your sister's? How come your handwriting is like chicken scratch, but theirs is nice and bubbly, right? It's like, like uh, how my sisters wrote their handwriting. How come your grades, how come your test scores aren't as high as your sister? And so for much of my childhood, I felt very criticized. And so I feel like it has even affected me today, to the way I dress, to the way I write. I actually have like this bubbly handwriting because I try to copy my sisters. And it has really affected my confidence or my lack of confidence because of this type of raising. On the other hand, I do remember God also provided some encouraging people too. And I remember when I first entered youth group, it was in seventh grade. I was like probably 12 or 13 years old. And I remember my first retreat. And we're lounging around and it was the beginning. We're waiting for everyone to show up. And we're talking. And actually, it was a really, when I think back, it was actually a very uh, encouraging conversation because everyone, we're going around and saying really nice things about each other, right? So if we can imagine us being a youth group, we'd be like, oh, Jason Schwartz, he's so fast, he's so awesome, right? And they'll say, Courtney, she's so sweet, she's so nice. And everyone's saying all these nice things about each other. And so they get to me, right, a seventh grader. I was like, uh-oh, right, because I'm constantly criticized, constantly that lack of confidence, and I got scared. And so for a few seconds when it got to me, it was like silence, right? And it felt like, even though it was probably like two, three seconds, it felt like it was like one hour where no one's saying anything. Until one of the coolest, one of the older guys, actually, he was like a junior in high school, he said, you know what? When I look at Tom, I think I can probably see like this like leadership abilities, right? And everyone starts like, yeah, right. And they started laughing, no way, no way. And it was almost so awkward. I, I was like, yeah, man, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even want to say I was you know, a leader either. And I was like, no way. And the way he responded was, well, you know, Take a look at him in the context of his peers. You say that because he's only 12 or 13, but how does he act among his peers? And watch what he'll look like, what, look, what his life will look like in the future. And when he said those words, I was like, yeah, man, I am a leader, right? And I, I swear I'll never forget those words. I'll never forget how encouraging they were to me. And you know... When I think about this, it's funny, but uh, I'm reminded of an old Tim Keller sermon and this one point that he made where he said, growing up, a lot of times we grow up hearing the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? And we always grow up hearing that we say that to other people when they make fun of us. 
But the truth is, the truth of the matter is, Tim Keller says, if I can reword that, it should really go something like sticks and stones, they can break my bones, but words can actually make or break our very soul and shape us to be who we are. In the same way, as we ask ourselves, what makes an effective church? We need to understand, we need to be supportive and we need to be encouraging. And we know this because when you look at our passage, Paul is super encouraging to the church, saying, look at the faith and the type of love you have. The amazing faith that you guys have as a church in the Ephesus. And I don't know about you, but when I think about biblical times, I, I think, man, you guys must have had it easy. You saw Jesus face to face. You, you're living in a, such a simpler life. But let me tell you, I'm sure their life was either just as hard or even more difficult to live out their faith. To be a people, we think about, oh my gosh, what kind of clothes, what kind of car, what kind of house am I going to buy that we want a better and better one, right? These guys were worried if God would provide at all. We're worried about the degree of provision. But they are worried, will God even provide a place for me to lay my head? Am I going to have sandals or am I going to walk barefoot? That's the type of faith they needed. We worry about if people will make fun of us if we live as Christians, right? They had to worry about if they're going to live, if they're going to be persecuted or be put to death. That's the type of faith they had to have. That's the type of faith they had. And so Paul provides the encouragement that they need. Not only that, but if you look at our passage, the other thing Paul encourages them is not only in their faith in, uh, in Jesus, but their love for one another, right? And I don't think I have to share how difficult it is for us to love each other, isn't it? We struggle loving people that are so different from us. We struggle loving people because they seem so mean. They seem so hurtful towards us. But let me tell you, back then, there was no one, anyone that was more different than a Jew and a Gentile. And so they hated each other. And they didn't just hurt one another. They're literally like killing each other, that they hate each other that much. That's how much they hurt one another. And yet, although they initially hated each other, because they realized Jesus redeemed them and fixed their relationship with uh, God and man and also man and man with one another. Once they realized that, they started loving each other incredibly and doing life together with one another. That's the type of love that Paul's pointing out to here. And so when you look at a church like this, was it a perfect church? Did they have the most perfect faith that they never... Uh, uh, were afraid that God would provide for them, or they had the perfect love where they're singing kumbaya around the fire and they're like the perfect church? I highly doubt it. But the point that, that uh, Paul is showing us here and what one commentary even makes is that Paul is able to give thanks for the imperfect good he sees in them. And by doing so, he encourages them to be the people that they were made to be. Imperfect as they are, he still encourages them. 
And this is important for us to see because I think it's so much easier to be a hater, isn't it? It's so much easier to see the wrong in people than to see the good in people. And yet, if we understand the power of words, the power of blessing, the power of encouragement, if we want to be an effective church, we will be a church that uses our words to support one another rather than cutting down each other. That's the first thing I, I think we need to see here. The second subtle way of being an effective church is not only to be encouraging, but we need to be a spiritual church, a church that looks out into the world with a spiritual perspective. In light of learning about being an effective church, I was reminded of this book that I read. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? And it's not a Christian book. And there's a lot of things that I don't agree with, but there are some things with Covey that uh, he makes a really good point. And there are, little, there are biblical truths that he shares whether he knows it or not. And one example he gives is in his book, uh, he gives this image right here. And he says, when you look at this image, what's the first thing you see, right? And some people, when you look at this, you see a young lady, right? But some people, when you look at it, you see an old lady. And to uh, exaggerate it a little bit, so the picture in the middle is the original picture, but to exaggerate it, the young lady, she's looking away, right? And so there's her chin with a nice necklace and you know, fur coat and whatever. But the older lady over here has a long nose, and instead of a necklace, this is now her mouth over here, right? And so Covey puts this in his book because he says, you know, the way we see the world is largely based on our perception. And so to change our situation, to change ourselves, you need to change your perspective. And again, I don't agree with everything he writes in this book, but one spiritual truth that he touches on is how perspective makes a big difference. And that's why when you look at verse 17 to 19, to be a really effective church, Paul knows and what he's praying for is greater spiritual perspective amongst the Ephesians. Paul knows for believers to be able to face the world, we need, a lot more, we need to know there's a lot more than what's just around us. We need to know that there is a spiritual reality. It's not just the physical, but the spiritual reality. And so the question is, how do we get there? How do we gain spiritual eyesight to know when we look out that it's not just trees, it's not just sun, but there's angels around us protecting us, guarding us, going before us. How do we have a vision like that? And the first thing we need to realize when you look at these words is that it doesn't just happen. You can't just get it out of nowhere but it's really the work and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what this means is to be a spiritual church, just like what Paul's doing here, we need to be a praying church. We need to ask God to reveal himself to us. You want to be a spiritual church? Be a praying church. You can't separate those two things. The second thing is to gain a spiritual perspective, not only do we need to ask God and pray to him, but we need a heart that's open, gentle, and willing to receive whatever God shows us, right? 
And that's why in our text, it's not only asking for the Spirit, but it talks about your heart. Your heart has to be open and willing to receive whatever God shows us. Because seriously, what good is it if we're like, God, please, please open my eyes to see the spiritual things, and we see it, and we're like, nope, nah, I'll pass on that, right? Because we just don't want to receive whatever God tells us. And so to really have a spiritual perspective, A, the Spirit has to, God has to give it, and B, our hearts have to be willing to receive it. And the last thing I want to point out, to gain a spiritual perspective, we need to spend more time with them. Simply grow spiritually to have a spiritual vision. Grow spiritually and gain more knowledge, what he prays about, right? That the people would have more knowledge about God. And when I say that, when I say grow in knowledge about him, I'm not just saying you just have to know facts about him, which a lot of Reformed people, we get criticized for, that we're so heady, that if we think we know our theology, if we know the sovereignty of God like the back of our hand, and we can defend all these things like predestination, then we know God. But the truth of the matter is, if you, to really know God isn't about the facts but it's really knowing him in an intimate and a personal way. That's what makes the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Non-believers can know facts about God, but they don't know God. They don't know him intimately and personally. That's the difference. J.I. Packer puts it in his book, Knowing God. You know what knowing God is supremely about? It's the fact that we, when you know God in an intimate and a personal way, the larger fact which underlines it is the fact that he knows us in an intimate way as well. That's what knowing God is all about. You know him so intimately that you know him and he knows you. You have that personal relationship. That's what knowing God is about. And this is important for us to see because, friends, if we would only gain the right spiritual perspective, if we would only know God and know that God knows us, if we would only have spiritual eyes to see beyond this world, to see our inheritance that's in heaven, all the resources in heaven that is at, for us to use, if we would only be able to see those things, my goodness, any of our present trials that we are facing today, whether you're a student and you're in school and you're like, there's no way that I can pass this exam. If you're in work and you're like, I can't get through this work, I need to find another job, or the lack of having a job and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Maybe you're in a marriage where you're, husband, where you're between husband and wife where you're struggling so much and you're like, I can't do it. I need to get a divorce. There's no way out. And when you think about all these things and you think that way, what you're doing is you're thinking and you're looking with physical eyes. But if you could only see with spiritual eyes and all the, again, all the heavenly resources that are available to us, there is nothing that will bring despair in our life. But instead, it's gonna, it talks about all the hope. I think it's, uh, it's in the earlier verses, in verse 16. We will not despair, but we will have hope 
because of the physical things that we see. We see God walking alongside of us. The last thing I want to share to learn to be an effective church, A, we've got to be encouraging. B, we need to have spiritual eyes. But C, we need the power of God as well. I don't know how many of you guys know about birds, uh, but, you know, I've always been intrigued with birds actually growing up. And I think it started when I was bored to death waiting at my bus stop every day for my, to go to school. And, you know, obviously back then there's no smartphones, and so I'm just staring out, looking at birds flying around. And I always wondered, man, it'd be so cool to be a bird. I would just, like, flap and fly and fly away and... Forget this waiting for the bus nonsense, right? You can be a bird and go wherever. But one thing that as I was studying uh, the passage, I learned about birds is, especially, it was a random article, but it was about turkey vultures. This is a turkey vulture up here. And the thing about birds is, you think they fly because they're like running and they're flapping their wings. And yeah, if you do watch them, that's how they get started, right? They, they take a couple of steps and they flap and they get up in the air. But turkey vultures, for example, they have a wingspan of six feet wide. Six feet. And so I can lay across and it's still longer than me. And so when they get up into the sky, though, they spread their majestic wings. And what they do is they find these uh, warm pockets of air, these thermals that they call it, right? And when they find these warm pockets of air, it gives them power to rise up from the ground. And they are able to go long distances because of that. They're not flapping the whole time. You never see birds flapping the whole time because they'll never make it long distances, right? It's only by the power of these winds. And the reason I share this with you is when you look at our passage, the picture it's painting to be an effective church, to be encouraging and to have spiritual vision, it seems impossible, doesn't it? How can we be encouraging when those people over there, they're so discouraging to me? How can I have spiritual vision when everything, it seems like all that we need, food, clothing, a house, everything we need is physical things. How can the Bible call for us to do these things? And that's why when you look at the way our texts end, God knows if that's all he said, then we would be in big trouble. He knows if that's all he said, instinctively we would try to do these things on our own, flap our wings to operate on our own strength. And yet the way that the passage ends is the only way we can be encouraging, the only way we can have spiritual sight, it's possible because of the power of God. Now when Paul thinks about the power of God, who can blame him? But our text shows us that he thinks about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And it makes sense. Because if you think about it, what type of power can raise someone up from the dead? If we travel all around the world, where can we go to find this power? If you had all the money in the world, who can you buy it from to raise someone up from the dead? And even if we trained ourselves from birth to constantly go like this, to hoping that we can fly one day, it would be futile, wouldn't it? To try to think that we can do it on our own. No, the only power that raises anyone up from the dead cannot come from us, 
and it cannot come from anywhere on this earth, but it must come from heaven. It must be a heavenly power. And that's where it did come from. Because what the gospel tells us is that when we fail to be effective church, when we fail to encourage one another, when we fail to live with a, a spiritual vision, but we have these physical eyes and like, oh, I want all this, I want a bigger house, a nicer car, tastier foods. And we, when we live with the physical perspective, because we failed to do all that scripture is telling us, God tells us wisdom came down from heaven to earth. A power came down from heaven to earth. And his name was Jesus. And he would die for the penalty of all of our failures. And yet the good news is that the Bible also tells us he would rise up from the dead. And the only reason he did that was because he was the God-man. 100% God, 100% man that came down from heaven. But you know what the most amazing part is? The way that our passage ends, that same power that Jesus rose up from the dead, Paul is telling us, the Bible is telling us, the church has the same exact power. Everyone united to Jesus has the resurrection power. And because we have this power, we're able to be who we're meant to be. We're able to encourage when it seems like we can't. We're able to have spiritual vision. We're able to live by the power of Christ. And so sure, by flapping our own wings, we can't do these things. We can't resist the world or, or the things that our flesh desires. But with God, with Jesus, with the resurrection power, with these spiritual thermal winds that God sends us, Surely we can do it. Surely we can soar high above, not only to beat our flesh, not only to beat the worldliness that's trying to take us down, but the scriptures tell us we can even beat Satan himself because we have the power of God. That's the encouragement that we see this morning. And so this morning, if you're a Christian, you know, as I was thinking about all of these things that scripture's talking about, encouraging, uh, living spiritually, living with power. You know, what all of this comes down to, it's really a matter of grace. And what I mean by that is, how can we, again, be encouraging when people are so mean to us? The answer is, because we come to know God, because we come to have spiritual eyes, it changes now the way we look at people. In the beginning, we said we can't encourage because they're not encouraging to us. But, you know, that's how the world operates. The world says clap and encourage people who are good. If they're good at music, say that they're good. If they're good at preaching, if they're good at sports, say that they're good. But, you know, the way that the church is supposed to work, it's not about how they are now. But you have such spiritual force uh, vision that you encourage them because you know the way that they're going to look in the future. You encourage them not because of their brokenness now, but you encourage them because you know that they are children of God and they will be perfected. And so when you see glimpses of their love, 
glimpses of their music abilities, all whatever it is. You praise them, even in their imperfection, because the world praises people for the way they are now, but we praise the people for the way that they will be in the future. And so, friends, to be an effective church, it's living out of grace, even in the brokenness of people, even in the brokenness when you look out into the world and you have these spiritual eyesight, you don't live out of despair, but with hope and encouragement and with grace. And when you do that, we will be an effective church together. If you're not a Christian here this morning, when you read about a community like this, don't you want something like this? If you're not a believer, don't you need this? You don't want to be just judged by your outer shell. You don't want words that will make or break your soul. Or not break your soul, but you want words that will make your soul. You want people that will encourage you. And so if you're not a believer, if you want a community like this, all you need to do is turn to Jesus. If you believe and you're a part of the church, all of these benefits come to you. And so friends, I pray May we be a church that has faith, that separates us from the world, but may we have love for one another that brings us together as well. Faith that separates, love that brings us together. That will make us an effective church.